be taking a look at verses 21 uh, to 24. Further, I'm going to move this a little bit. I tend to move around a lot, and I've knocked over some things before, so I think it's best if we get a lot of these things out of the way. Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 24, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have Bibles that should be in the pews in front of you. Now, please consider it, if you don't have Bibles at home, please consider it a gift from our church to you. Our hope and prayer is that you would take this Bible home with you, and in your reading of God's Word, that He would reveal Himself to you, a God who wants to be near to us, a God who wants to know and to be known by us. Now, before we get into the passage, let me open up this way. Ever since I was little, one of the things that fascinated me was uh, the life of astronauts uh, in outer space. Life out there was endlessly fascinating to me. Because if you're an astronaut out in space, you have to reimagine every little detail of your day according to the monumental shift in paradigm that is the simple fact that there is no gravity out there. And so you may know, if you're an astronaut out in space, you have foods that have to be specially packaged. Uh, You need special harnesses. Let's say you want to get some exercise in on the treadmill. You need to have special harnesses that strap you in as you're trying to exercise. Even hygiene is an issue when you're in outer space, right? I heard that astronauts have these special shampoos that are supposed to be better suited for zero gravity. And you may be happy to know that they even have special potties for astronauts in outer space, right? There's this new reality of being in outer space transforms every single aspect of an astronaut's life. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, and he, when he said, I am bringing my kingdom into this world, he was essentially saying, I am shifting the paradigm of, re- of your reality, such that now you cannot, you can no longer go on with your life as if it was business as usual. In light of the coming of my kingdom, you need to reimagine every little detail of your life according to the new reality that I'm ushering into the world. But what is this new reality? Right? And that's what we're going to be taking a look at uh, this morning. Now, before we get into the text, let me situate us real quickly, because if you were to come, uh, if you were to look at the passage that comes right before the text that we're about to read, uh, Jesus asks his disciples, and he asks, who do you say that I am? And you find that most of the disciples presumably hesitate a little bit, but Simon Peter, as he usually does, he speaks out, and he responds to his question by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is elated at this point, and he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Must have been a high point of Peter's life. But coming off the heels of this great moment is where we get to today's passage. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 24. Let me read this for you. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Amen. Now, just coming off the heels of this great moment, what happens to Peter? Jesus turns to Peter and calls him Satan. And you say, okay, that's a little bit harsh, coming from the God of the universe. Did Jesus really say that? Right? What's, what's the Greek, what's the, uh, what's the word in the original language for Satan? It, it can't be Satan. And I look it up, looked it up, and in the Greek, the word Satan is Satan. Right? Jesus said what he said. Now, here's what's strange. Peter, just in the passage before, recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah that the people of God have been waiting for for hundreds of years, but had absolutely no clue as to what it meant for Jesus to be that Messiah, nor did he have any clue as to the kind of kingdom that this Messiah was going to bring into uh, the world. Right? And that's where the confusion was. And that's what I want us to look at uh, this morning, right? What is this new reality? What is this kingdom that Jesus brought into the world? Now, I want to look at this uh, topic under three headings. First, what this new reality is. And secondly, why it is so different from our reality. And lastly, how we can participate uh, in it, right? What this new reality is and why it's so different from our reality and lastly, how we can participate in it. Now first, what this reality is. Now if you were to look at verse 21 of our passage, it says, At some point in Jesus' ministry, he began to show his disciples that he must, now notice the sequence here, he must first go to Jerusalem, and then suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and then be killed, and then lastly, and on the third day, be raised. He must go, he must suffer, he must die, and then he will be raised. Now, this is the new reality that Jesus was bringing into the world. Notice he says, I must first go through these things and then be raised. The new reality that Jesus was bringing into the world was that the cross, cross must come before the crown. The cross must come before the crown. Now, why was it necessary that the cross must come before the crown? Two things. The cross must come before the crown because, in Jesus' mind, because of the presence and the power of sin. The cross would not have any meaning if there wasn't a power in the presence of sin in the world. Now, let me talk about this really quickly. Now, let's work our way backwards. We love talking about the resurrection, don't we? Especially with Easter coming up. But as one theologian put it, the resurrection without the cross, however, according to this theologian, is 
an isolated demonstration of divine dazzlement. Theologians and pastors, we love alliteration, don't we? An isolated demonstration of divine dazzlement. Hey guys, look, I am God. I'm able to be raised to life. A good trick, right? And that's all it would be if resurrection did not have the cross that comes before. But working backwards once again, the cross, without the power and presence of sin, is merely an act of divine masochism. The cross, without the power and presence of sin in the world, would just be divine masochism. Right? You can't have the discussion of the cross without discussion of sin. Now, as Christians, we love talking about the cross, don't we? But oftentimes, when we talk about the cross, it's oftentimes just a demonstration of the cross that we love talking about, more so than the reason for the cross. We love saying the pious things like this, Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to die for you on the cross. We hear Christians say that a lot, don't we? I mean, that statement doesn't really mean much without any kind of context that is given. Let me put it this way. I heard this illustration before from someone. Let's say you and your friend are walking alongside a train track. And your friend turns to you and says, you know what, I'm going to demonstrate for you how much I love you. And as a train is coming by, he decides to jump onto the train track and be run over by the train. Now, what is going to be your response at that moment? You're going to be traumatized. You're going to be offended. You're going to be confused, like, what just happened? It's nothing more than an act of suicide. It's nothing more than an act of masochism. That does not show love at all. But let's say, on the other hand, you're walking alongside a train track, and you stumble and fall onto the train track, and the train is about to come, and you can't get out of the way yourself. And so your friend jumps in, pulls you out, pushes you out of the way, and gets run over by the train. Now, that is a completely different story, isn't it? The cross speaks of a costly love. The cross is meaningful because it demonstrates costly love. And without understanding the cost, there's not much in the way of understanding the love that is demonstrated. And so when Jesus says, I must suffer and die, that is necessary because of the power and the presence of sin in our lives. So that's the first reason. But the second reason is this. On the cross, uh, not only was he paying the price for sin, the cross was necessary not just because of sin, but also because Jesus was setting the pattern for the kingdom that he was ushering into the world. He was setting the pattern for the kingdom that he was ushering into the world. Look with me to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice Jesus does not say, hey, when I usher in this kingdom, for all of you who want to be the spiritual elites of my kingdom, I want you to take up your cross and follow me. For those of you that want to be influential in this kingdom that I am bringing into the world, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is absolutely indiscriminate when it comes to the requirement of the kingdom. He says, anyone, if there is anyone who would come after me, 
the requirement is that you need to take up your cross. Here's what we learn. What we learn is that the cross is to be at the center of reality for anyone who wants to be a Christian. If there is any of you who is interested in becoming a Christian, this is what it looks like. The cross is at the center of your reality. Just as astronauts in space need to basically uh, rearrange their entire life under the, uh, around the central reality of zero gravity, a Christian needs to reorient their entire life around the central reality that is the cross. That's what it means to live a cross-centered life. But what does that look like? What does it look like for you and I to live a cross-centered life? Well, there's a million different implications. But here's what I want to focus on and really kind of zero in on specifically with the context that we are in. Here's a question. How do you and I deal with sin in our life? How do you and I deal with the evil and suffering that we see out in the world? There are two implications that flow out of living a cross-centered life. A cross-centered life, first and foremost, when you look at sin and evil in yourself and in the world around you, the first thing that you do is you don't, you do not look away from it. With the sin inside of you and the evil and the suffering outside of you, you do not look away from it. See, because when sin <clears throat> loses its specificity, or put it another way, as long as sin and evil remain as abstractions in your life, that's when the cross loses its power. And friends, here's where many of our lifestyles in, in our suburb uh, can be a distraction to us. Because you and I know that our time can be so easily filled with work and leisure and activities. Our calendars can fill up really quickly. And that in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? They, these activities that we engage in, if done right, can really enrich our lives. But what they can also do is they can distract us, right? Coming, from coming face to face with uh, the sinful habits that we carry with us, right? With the kind of trauma that we may be living with that have not been dealt with. Or the unspoken strain in the relationships that exist within our family or in our marriage that is hardly ever talked about because we're simply too busy. So we don't deal with the sin that is inside of us. <clears throat> but it's also hard to deal with the evil and suffering around us. Right? Many of us live in really kind of safe and great neighborhoods. Right? And that's a good thing, right? to be safe and to know that your children are safe. But these physical boundaries, literally physical boundaries that are often put up between us and the poor and the marginalized means that we can be shielded from having to look onto the kinds of systemic and social brokenness that exist in our world. And we really only encounter evil and suffering when we look on our phone screens 
And so here's the challenge for us who are living in the suburban lifestyle and are constantly talking about how busy we are and how filled up our calendars can be. The challenge for us that is presented by the text to us and that is presented to us by the cross is to not look away from sin or suffering. You know, I often uh, think about this text. There's a, there's a verse in uh, Luke chapter 9. It's this little verse here. Uh, where it's a transition in Jesus' ministry, where Luke says, when it came time for Jesus to be taken up, it says, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. Now that verse has such an impact in my heart because Jesus knew well that to enter into Jerusalem meant that he will be entering into suffering, that he'll be entering into death. But I love the way the King James Version translates it because it says, he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He turned his gaze resolutely to the place of his suffering and death. And what the good news of the gospel tells us is that because Jesus did that, that frees us up now, doesn't it? For us to be able to look into the depths of our heart to confront sin. Dare to look outside of us to look into the evil and suffering that exists around us. Right? That's the challenge that the cross gives to us, to not look away from it. But secondly... Not only does the cross challenge us to not look away from evil and suffering, and this is the hard one, the cross challenges us to actually experience the effects of sin and the weight of the evil and suffering around us. Now, what do I mean by this? Notice Jesus says here, it is necessary for me not just to die, but he said it is necessary for me to suffer. We love talking about Jesus paying the price for sin. We hesitate more in talking about Jesus paying for the effects of sin. Bearing the weight and its devastating effects on himself. See, it's not enough for us to just look at sin and suffering, but we need to experience the weight of it for our sake, for us to process it, but for others as well, right? <clears throat> that means to engage yourself emotionally, right? And even physically, to be in the midst of it. So that means if it's the sin within you, if it's like a deadly habit that you're working through or if it's some kind of trauma that you've experienced that you haven't processed in the past, right? it is to sit in the midst of it. It's to grieve over it. It's to experience its sorrow. Now, many of us may need help in doing that, whether it's with a, with a couple of trusted friends or even with the help of our counselors, right? because it can get heavy but it's to start the work, to let it have its effect on you. But it's not just talking about the sin in you, but it's talking about the sin around you, right? When you see evil and suffering in the world, many of us want to look away from it. But what the cross challenges us to do is to not hold back your heart, 
The challenge is to give it over to the weight and grief of this sin. I think of John chapter 11. You remember what happens there? We find that Lazarus is dead, Mary and Martha's brother, and Jesus makes his way over. And during that entire time, right, Jesus is God, right? He knows what's going to happen. And yet, here's what one of the verses says. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, listen to what it says here, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that phrase right there is hard to get across in English, um, but it's it's talking about this visceral, almost like emotionally violent experience that Jesus is having. He is shaken to the core. Now, the question is, Jesus knew that he would be bringing Lazarus back to life. And yet, he gives himself over to participate and experience the suffering of others. Now, that is difficult for us, isn't it? When we're faced with sin, we'd much rather ignore it, or at best, kind of, you know, look to some inspiring text or a quote uh, for us to kind of, for it to kind of wash over us so that we can kind of move past it. Or when we see uh, some systemic injustice or suffering, we'd much rather, from a distance, talk about its solutions rather than sitting with those who are experiencing suffering and sorrow and experiencing it together with them. And friends, that is the challenge for us. And here's the call for us as a church. To live a cross-centered life. And this is how we're going to not just talk about, but demonstrate the cross to our friends and our neighbors. Right, it's a challenge for us because we have the means to walk away from it. But at the same time, with every challenge, and I believe it with my whole heart, with every challenge, there is an opportunity, isn't there? This is the gospel opportunity for a church like ours to make a difference in the world because there are people around us that likewise have the means to never confront the sin in their hearts nor the evil and injustice and suffering that is out in the world. But what would it look like for you and I in the context where we could look away from it, refuse to look away from it, where we could distance ourselves from evil and sin and suffering in the world, decide to enter into it and be with those who are in grieve that friends that is where the cross will be demonstrated to the world around us that's what it means for you and I to live a life that is centered on the cross our world will see our lives long before they listen to our words and that is a new reality that Jesus is bringing into the world but we have to, we're going to move through the next two points fairly quickly. But let's also look at why this is so different. Why this is a new reality that Jesus is bringing into the world. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned earlier in the introduction uh, to this teaching that just a couple of verses uh, before this passage, we, we saw Jesus ask, right, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter at this point gives an A-plus answer, right? He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is one of the most theologically profound confessions that is found in all of the Bible, right? This is the mountaintop experience when it comes to what we call Christology, 
right? So uh, uh, Peter makes this incredible confession, but just three verses afterwards, when Jesus says he's going to suffer and die, Peter takes him aside, and the gall on this guy straight up rebukes Jesus Christ. Now, why the turn? Here's why. Peter had no problem serving a Savior. Peter just had a problem with serving a suffering Savior. Now, you guys remember the scene on Palm Sunday? Today's Palm Sunday. <clears throat> Jesus rides into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And what does a crowd do? They yell out something, right? We sang this earlier. What do they yell out? Hosanna. Do you know what Hosanna means? Save us. Please save us. Now, over the years, because of Jesus, it's come to, uh, it's come to be used as a, as a phrase, a word of, of, of expression of praise. But what it, it was cried out to people who would come and save their people. And here's the kind of Savior they were expecting. The people of God, and we don't have to time to get into all of this, the people of God were expecting a conquering Savior. You have to remember, the people of God at the time were being oppressed by a Roman government. And so they were expecting a political hero who would come charging in and overthrow the powers that be at the time and would install himself as emperor over this new empire. Would begin the rule and reign where, the, where, where Christianity would be in the majority, where Christianity would be in power. Right? That's what the crowd was expecting. And that's why they held out palm branches in their hands, welcoming this new king in. It was an act of rebellion against uh, the, the presiding powers of the world at the time. So that's what they were expecting, a conquering savior. But what do they get instead? They get a suffering savior. Right? No wonder the only crowd that gathered around Jesus as he went to the cross was the crowd that would mock him would jeer at him, would despise him. Now here's why this is worth mentioning. Where is your salvation found? Now I'm not talking about the capital S salvation, okay? Salvation from hell and to heaven and all those kinds of things. Where is your little S salvation found? When we think about all of the things that make us happy, all of the things that give us fulfillment in life, everything revolves around the good life, doesn't it? And it makes perfect sense, right? Who wants to stew in suffering, right? Who wants to stew in the effects of evil? You may be thinking, right, there's a reason why I studied so hard when, as an undergrad or in, in grad school, right? There's a reason why I work so hard at my job, right? There's a reason why we send our kids to the schools that they go to, right? There's a reason why we move to the neighborhoods that we move to, right? We are in pursuit of the good life, and it is not a bad thing in and of itself, but the pursuit of the good life, the pursuit of, of, of moving away from evil and suffering is literally written into our genetic code. We are hardwired to look for a conquering Savior. So you and I, we can make fun of Peter all we want, but he's articulating exactly every single one of our impulses. So how in the world can we go against our impulses? And how can we live a cross in our life? For most of us, here's how it works, Okay. 
this is an obscure, very old movie reference now. I didn't realize it was this old, but it's almost 20 years old now, uh, I think. There's a movie, an uh, animated movie called Finding Nemo. It's a Pixar film, and uh, this uh, movie uh, talks about this, the, uh, shows an adventures of this little clownfish called Nemo. And on one of his adventures, he meets a band of sharks. Now, this is a particular, uh, peculiar group of sharks. Uh, this is a band of sharks that vow to not eat fish. And so whenever they have their little gatherings and they come together, right, they, they recite their vows. And one of their vows, they say, uh, fish are friends, not food. Fish are friends, not food. And they do everything in their power to curb their desires and their impulses to eat fish. But inevitably, time and time again, their impulses come back. Their teeth get real sharp, and their eyes get bloodshot, and they go after these fish. Right? So time and time again, they spend their entire life trying to curb their impulses. And for many of us, that is our existence. We hear from church that we need to confront the sin in our hearts. We hear from church that we need to do something and feel for right, those who are suffering. We need to address those injustices in our world. And it goes, so goes against our nature that our entire lives are marked by this pursuit of curbing our impulses and our desires. And like those fish, we look just as ridiculous, don't we? It's a miserable existence. We spend our entire life trying to curb our desires and our impulses. No wonder when the outside world looks into the church, they say, you guys are just about uh, 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 suffocating your desires. You're not meant for that. Go to church on Sunday Give away your hard-earned money to the church and other causes? Live a life of sexual integrity? That is absurd. And so is that what our life is? Because we, many of us, don't present an appetizing alternative to the outside world. We spend our whole lives trying to curb these desires and impulses that come so naturally to us. So how in the world, if Jesus is ushering in this new reality, how in the world are we going to participate in it in a way that is anything other than miserable in existence? Because that's not what Jesus has in, plan, uh, has in store for us. So last point, how do we participate in it? <clears throat> Now look at, when Peter rebukes him, look at Jesus' response. Right? He turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now why was Peter a hindrance to Jesus? Jesus says, You are not setting your mind on the things of God. That is the reason. Now, what does it mean to set your mind on something? To set your mind on something is to be, think deeply about something, to, to direct your thoughts. This is not just talking about a straight thought here or there that gets engaged to a topic. It's talking about an intentional directing of the mind towards something. You're exerting great effort to think about one thing. Towards what? On the things of God. 
Or perhaps a better translation would be the will of God or the heart of God. It's talking about God's intentions. What Jesus is saying, you are not setting your mind on the heart of God. See, these desires that we have, they're not centered on the cross because Jesus says we are not setting our mind on the heart of God. Now, what is the heart of God? What is his heart set on? Now, zoom out with me, right? We're talking about the God of the universe here, right? Psalm 8 tells us that he fashioned the known universe, the known and unknown universe, and it's all of its vastness with the tip of his fingers, see? The creator God, the sovereign God, the most powerful being in all of the known and unknown universe, what would his heart be set on? Would his heart be set on the cosmos? Would his heart be set on the Milky Way or even zooming down to earth on the Grand Canyon? Right? Something huge on world events, on universe-altering events. Is that what God has his heart set on? The Bible tells us that God has his heart set on his people. On little old you and me. Now, how do I know that? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> earlier uh, we talked about Jesus needing to go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die. And we gave reasons for that because of the presence and power of sin and because of the new reality that Jesus was ushering into the world. Now, there's a part of that question that we didn't answer because those answers actually are the, uh, are the reason why uh, we needed Jesus to suffer and die. Because we needed a new way of living. Because we needed sin to be dealt with. But why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? Right? He is the God of the universe. Right? He didn't need to do anything. Right? He could have been just fine. He could have been, okay, these guys are uh, just kind of messed up. Let's start all over again. He could have done that. It was necessary for Jesus to come and suffer and die because it was something that he so intensely desired that out of the depths of his heart, there was no alternative for him. See, when I hear my child crying in agony, I need to go to him. Now, what does it mean that I need to go address the needs of my crying child? See, I can hold back and let him suffer, Right? It has no impact on my physical welfare. I am not the one in pain. So what does it mean when I say that I need to go meet the needs of my child? As a matter of fact, I'm sure there are negligent parents that would ignore the cries of the child. But for those of us who would answer the call of our child or any loved one that we have, and we need to respond... We do so because we have wrapped our happiness and our welfare, hear me? We have wrapped our, our happiness and our welfare so tightly around that of my child or your loved one that their needs, 
that my child's needs have become mine. Right? This is what it means that it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. It's saying that Jesus has given his heart to us, that he has wrapped his, his happiness and his welfare so tightly around ours that when he saw us in our time of need, there was no other option for him but to suffer and to die. When he saw the evil and the suffering in the world, there was no other option for him. See, it is on the cross where his love is most fully on display. And it is on the cross the most crucial aspect of God's nature. His love is on display. And so friends, hear me when I say this. As a church, when we proclaim God, when we make his name known, we are proclaiming the cross. We are making known the cross of Jesus Christ. And friends, when you and I are affected by that love, when we are won over by that love, we learn to love him back just as he loved us, just as a child over time, learns to love in a way that is a nuance and learns to love in a way that is as sacrificial, learn to love in a way that is as complex as a parent's love to their child, right? That's what happens to us. The more we experience the love of Jesus, the more we learn to love him back. And that's when we begin to understand what it means to bear in our bodies the scandal of the cross, not out of some masochistic impulse to suffer. Here's what happens when we, the, the more we experience the love of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, the more we learn to appreciate it, the more we learn to experience it. We are drawn near to the throne of grace. We are drawn near to the heart of God himself. And as we do so, you know what we learn? We learn that there are others out there for whom Jesus has died. And our hearts go out to them likewise. We learn to become like our Father. See, that is the organic and natural way in which we learn to be ushered into this new reality. Not out of clenching our teeth and white-knuckling our way through it, but it is when we are won over by that love that God makes His kingdom come in our hearts and in our lives. And just as Christ's suffering became the answer to our suffering, if we let Him we will be used by God to become the answer to those that are suffering around us. There's a, uh, <clears throat> a famous missionary. Um, he was part of a, a, a group of missionaries. There's a man named Jim Elliott. Uh, he was a missionary to the Warani people in Ecuador uh, who famously gave his life as a martyr uh, when he was killed by the people he was looking to serve. And there's a famous quote that is given by him. Where he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. All of the other little salvations that you look out into the world, the good life that you and I are after, you know that we cannot keep those things. And I remember at once thinking, like, that is such a great model. I want to live by that. I want to give away everything that I cannot keep because I want to gain the thing that I cannot lose. And I thought, 
The thing that I cannot lose was the kingdom of God. Heaven, all of the riches that are stored up there, all of the great experience that I'm going to have, that's what I thought it was. But now that I've gotten a little bit older and hopefully more mature, what I'm starting to understand is that the thing that you and I gain by giving away the things that we cannot lose is Jesus Christ himself. Because when we dare step out of our comfort zone into the suffering of others, what we are doing is we are identifying with Jesus. And as we do so, Jesus becomes part of our journey. He says, I will walk with you. I will show myself to you. And that is who we gain. Friends, will you, will we as a church, keep ourselves near the cross to not be afraid of evil and suffering. For Jesus dealt with all of that. May we dare enter into the evil and suffering in our hearts and in the lives of others. May we demonstrate the cross of Jesus to a world around us that is so hurting. And this is the way it's going to be done. One of the hymns that I love, and I'll close with this, one of the hymns that I love, it's called near the, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. And one of the verses goes like this. It says, Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow over me. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till my ransomed soul shall find rest beyond the river. Let us find our rest in the cross of Christ as we bear upon ourselves. Let's pray. Our Father God, um, Father, we thank you for your word uh, this morning. And Father, as we um, spend this next week during Passion Week, we ask that you will bring the scenes of the cross ever before us, that we will live under its shadow, that we will meditate upon it, that we will let the cross of your son Jesus have its uh, effect on us. And God, as we are moved by the love that was demonstrated to us on the cross, may we carry the cross ourselves for the sake of our neighbors around us, for our friends and family, and for the renewal of the world. And so God, by your grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, may it be so. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us please stand as we sing our last song before we move into the Lord's table. <laughs>